This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 634. So that that's a silver lining. If you've had if it's if it has been too competitive for you to get into this business the last five years, that is about to ease off. And this could be your window. And and one last thing I'd say is that uh, the, the interest rates have been low for a while, right? Um, yeah, we were able to borrow monies on multifamily at, at you know three, three and a half, sometimes maybe even in the two percents. Those rates are uh, you know it's hard to sell those properties, but now if I've got a property that I borrowed at three percent interest on, what's going on, everyone? My name is David Green, and I'm your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast. Here today with a fire episode that if you like multifamily investing, you are guaranteed to love. Today, I bring back former guests, Andrew Cushman and Matt Faircloth, both GoBundance members and multifamily experts that I sort of rub elbows with and talk shop about the multifamily market. Many of you know Andrew is the person that I partner with when I do multifamily deals, and Matt wrote the book for Bigger Pockets, Raising Private Capital. Andrew's been on shows 170, 279, 571, 586, and 607. Matt's been on shows 88, 203, and 289. I know I said those quick, but if you really want to listen, come back to this at the end of the episode, write down those show numbers, and hear more about their story. In today's show, we get into what's going on in the state of the market with multifamily, including strategies that are working with this new interest rate hike, what to watch out for, what asset classes to go after, what a whisper price is, and more that if you like multifamily investing, you should love because you're finally getting an opportunity to not get outbid by the big guys that raised a whole bunch more capital than you did and just went in with a bigger number than you could. Before we bring them in, today's quick tip is simple, and it's brought to you by my good friend, the Batman. Here's something you have to understand about Batman. When he was a young boy, he was overcome with fear. And rather than becoming overcome with fear for his whole life, he learned how to make his enemies feel fear. See, this relationship with fear is a very important ingredient in your own journey as a superhero. So rather than being afraid of the changes that are happening in the market, what I would encourage you to do is to go find sellers who are feeling that same fear. Find a seller that is overreacting and is going to sell their asset at a price much lower than it should be or with better terms than they actually had to take because you're capitalizing on their fear instead of feeling your own. This is working for me. I've got about 12 properties in contract all in the last 30 days. I got them at significantly better prices than I should have, at least most of them, because the sellers are in a panic and are selling off. These are all going to cash flow very strong, are often in grade A areas, and are something that I would love to hold long-term because I'm out there getting my Batman on, and you should do the same. And be sure to listen all the way to the end of the episode because these guys share what they would do if they were starting over from scratch. Starting at zero in today's market, you don't want to miss that. And if you like it, let me drop a little hint for you. We may have them back to do an entire episode on just that topic. Multifamily has been almost untouchable for the average investor for a very long time, and we're finally seeing some openings in that space. So this is a very exciting time. I hope you love today's show. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com/bp to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. 
Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com VP. Connectinvest.com VP. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through Rent to Retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. I need to double check with Zach, Rental Retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? <laughs> it's not that complicated, Rob. Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Hold on, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to renttoretirement.com today. Finding rental property insurance has been a headache for the past few years. You know the feeling. You're scrambling, calling 20 different insurance agencies in a dozen different cities, struggling to protect your portfolio at the right cost. But I'm going to tell you a little secret that'll change everything. Veteran investors don't go through the everyday insurance companies. They just use NREG. NREG, that's N-R-E-I-G, provides insurance solely for real estate investors. They've built the largest insurance program in the country for residential, tenant-occupied, vacant, and renovation properties. The best part? You can put all your properties on one insurance schedule and one monthly bill. And you can add, change, or remove properties without having to cancel one policy and purchase another. They insure properties from single-family rentals, up to 20-unit multifamily dwellings, vacation rentals, mobile homes, condos, and more. Trade catchy jingles for cash flow with insurance made for investors. Visit nreg.com slash bppod to request a proposal. N-R-E-I-G dot com slash B-P-P-O-D. Andrew Cushman and Matt Faircloth, welcome back to the Bigger Pockets podcast. How are you two today? I'm doing really well. I, I woke up this morning, which means I'm one less day from dying young, so that's a good start. You went there. <laughs> I, I'm I'm well, David. Thank you for asking. Thank you for that. <laughs> thanks you. Ha- thanks for having us too. Andrew is going to have like a book of these. He's so good at coming up with these little quips, just like that. Like I, you literally might have a book in your desk that you open up every time right before I put you on the podcast. You're like, which one do I want to use today? <laughs> so I'm not quite that organized yet. I, I ain't dead yet. Right. Gentlemen, today we are going to be discussing multifamily real estate. Lately, we've been doing some deep dives into multifamily. So Andrew and I have done a couple shows on the process we use when we're buying apartment properties together, particularly the underwriting process and the due diligence. Matt, you've been doing a lot of work for Bigger Pockets, particularly in the boot camp space. Can you tell us briefly, Matt, about your Bigger Pockets boot camps and how people can sign up for those? Sure. Uh, and, and I'm just grateful to uh, have that opportunity to teach people that either want to raise their game or get going in multifamily uh, through the Bigger Pockets Bootcamp. Uh, you got to have a pro membership to sign up for it. But once you have that, it, go to biggerpockets.com forward slash bootcamps. Um, and it's a, I believe, a 10 week uh, program, David, where it teaches you everything from 
getting straight and revisiting your goals around multifamily to, and then uh, choosing a market for multifamily and underwriting deals, uh, making offers on deals, uh, you know, and then, and then managing that deal to profitability and then also liquidating the deal when you're done. So the entire multifamily process is documented there. It's myself and a few of my DeRosa group uh, team members teach it, uh, including Justin Fraser, Hervé Francois, and a few other folks. Um, and it's been well attended, lots of great feedback so far. We're in the middle of our second one right now and launching our third cohort, um, I believe starts in September and enrollment starts uh, in just a few weeks in August. Did we mention how people can sign up if they want to take the course? Yeah, it's biggerpockets.com forward slash bootcamps. There we go. In today's show, we kind of want to get into the state of the multifamily market. Basically, we want to share what we're seeing in today's market. Because unless you've been living under a rock and you haven't heard, things are changing pretty quickly. And now is as good of a time as ever to start paying attention to what's going on in real estate. So, Andrew, I'm going to start with you. What are you seeing as far as tailwinds to the multifamily space? Yeah, the tailwinds are still significant. And it's funny, tailwind sounds like a negative, but you know what that means you know, when we talk about tailwinds, think about you're in a plane and the tailwind is pushing you forward so you, you actually get somewhere that you're headed faster, right? So a tailwind's a good thing. Uh, one is the fundamentals are still really strong. The fundamentals of multifamily and rental real estate really comes down to supply and demand. Uh, nationwide occupancy is still extremely high and we have a housing shortage. We are still, you know, depending on who you're getting your data from, we're either two or five million units short, but it, it's always millions of units short, right? No one, I've yet to see anything that says, oh, we have oversupply. There might be a, a market or two where someone built too much, but overall, we have way too uh, few housing units. Also, new cost of new construction has gone through the roof. And it's getting re, you know, getting really expensive to buy. I'm sorry, not to buy, but to build. And so it's making it so builders either can't build or they have to target only luxury. And that ends up with uh, getting fewer units built in the first place. But second of all, the ones that do get delivered um, have to target really high income renters. They're not delivering class B or A minus or even C properties. And um, that just increases the shortage of that kind of workforce affordable housing. And so there's an even greater supply demand imbalance there. Uh, you know, interest rates rising, uh, it's really easy for us to focus on some of the negatives of that and and, and just say, oh my gosh, it makes it harder to buy you know, multifamily because the cost of debt goes up. Well, the flip side of that is it makes it harder for everyone to buy a house. Um, the most recent figures I've seen that are in, in most U.S. major cities, it is 30% more expensive to try to buy a house now than to rent, which means all those people who were going to buy a house when rates were at 3%, now they can't because rates are at 6 They just became really good, high-quality renters, and they're going to go find a Class B or Class A apartment, and they're going to rent for the next couple of years. And then um, I know Matt will have a few things to add. The, the one other thing you know, that's always a you know, tailwind for, for rental housing is that people have to have a place to live, right? You can buy or speculate on all the real estate in the metaverse that you want, but it's not going to keep your head dry when it's raining, right? So it's, it's one thing that is never going to be outsourced to the internet or to the digital world. I'm going to tell your twin brother, Mark Zuckerberg, that you said that the metaverse is not going to keep your house dry, your, your head dry. And I'll see what he says about it. I'm not related to, to Mark in any form or fashion. 
I know. I'm just yeah, teasing because yeah. you kind of you look like maybe maybe a distant cousin, but um, but uh, but anyway, I, I agree, and and it's I think that uh, as the economy changes, uh, uh, David, and I think a, a good tailwind is that um, investment and folks are going to be looking more towards tangible things, right? Um, and so sticks and bricks, uh, housing, roofs over people's heads um, are are going to be good, solid, sound investments. Are going to perform well, I think, because as much as in, in multifamily. A good tailwind, and again, this is a good thing for a changing economy. It is the real estate housing, multifamily housing, is the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right? What do we need? We gotta have. I gotta have. I gotta eat three squares a day, maybe. Um, I gotta eat. Uh, I gotta have shelter. I, I've got to have those things. The, the other ancillary benefits that people need are that are higher up Maslow's hierarchy of needs tend to get you know, shaved off if there is a recession. So I think that multifamily housing is because it's a core need um, for people. It, it is, it is something that's way more stable and, and, and down the food chain for things that are getting axed if, if, uh, if times get a little tougher, right? You know, with these tailwinds, um, keep that in mind, you know, as you're, as you're, as you're, looking at you know, real estate. And I don't want to jump ahead too much and, and get into the, the headwinds, which are against you. But one of the headwinds is, is if you hold really still and listen carefully, you can almost hear the collective sphincters of investors tightening across the country right now. Um, as everyone gets scared of real estate and crypto goes down, the stock market's down, right? And, you know, that, that, that that that's a headwind but what you want to do is look at these tailwinds many of which are structural they are not going to go away and so look and say all right well what is this real estate going to be five years seven years ten years down the road if i buy a duplex now that is in a you know if i my first investment is a duplex and i'm going to house hack it and it's in the florida panhandle where people are moving and and that's going to continue right even if we get into a recession that area is going to grow i get my duplex i house hack it a few years down the road i can leverage that into to a five unit and then a 10 unit look long term and and that you know that's how you can as a new investor or an investor with 10,000 units look long term and and take these tailwinds and you and, and, and use them to develop your investing strategy and build your portfolio let me get your guys's take on a concept that might apply here so whenever there's a change that appears negative such as interest rates going up or maybe before what it was, was there was too many buyers in the market. So houses were selling for over asking price. I noticed that people tend to see the immediate negative effect and just focus on that and they don't look one step further. So for instance, interest rate going up does make mortgages more expensive. So less people can qualify for a house. However, that removes a lot of the competition of buyers and it knocks out a lot of people that maybe could have bought a house. Now they have to stay renting. So that could force rents to go up in the multifamily space because they can't buy a home. Same thing when you knock buyers out of competition. Yeah, your mortgage might be higher, but prices will usually have to adjust, especially in the investment space. And now you've got less competition from other buyers. So there's always a silver lining whenever there's an adjustment. I wanted to get your two opinion on... So in today's market, what silver linings are you two seeing behind the doom and gloom that's kind of coming through the news and social media? Well, 
uh, we haven't gotten this far uh, yet, Andrew, and, that, and that's talking about inflation. And I'm not saying that I, I don't. I, I, I see the human side of real estate, so I, I don't. Th- I don't take it for granted that a cost a gallon uh, of gas has gone up for everybody, including my tenants. And so I feel for them. Um, and, uh, and uh, but I also know that there is wage growth uh, as well, and that that is a real thing. And wage growth is happening, and the cost of, and and the cost of living, cost of goods have gone up as well. But I just think that the cost of everything in America is going to continue to increase, and that is a tailwind. That that is a good thing that's happening for us. That that that's why that's that's why interest rates are going up. By the way, is because they're trying to curb inflation, which actually benefits us as real estate investors because it ups our rent. So there's some markets we're invested in that rents have gone up fifteen to twenty percent, and tenants are still qualifying uh, for those new rents because they're they're getting raises. Burger King that was paying $11 an hour is now paying $18 to $19 an hour. Amazon is starting at $25 an hour. Um, and that, so, uh, wages, I think are going to put more money in people's pockets. And unfortunately that's the way things go is that if that money's going to get sucked out for a different cost of living items, including their rents, hopefully they get to keep a little bit more of it themselves too. Um, but that's going to drive, uh, our, our, our top line. Uh, as well as landlords. Yeah, and you know, I'd say some additional silver linings. Um, you know, we already touched on this, but a lot of where it is rising interest rates are adding quality renters to the pool because they're not buying houses. Uh, these are generally yeah. people with high incomes, high credit scores. We already talked about that. Another one is you know, existing properties become more um, become more valuable and, and in a sense more scarce because it gets harder and more expensive to deliver new units. We touched on that. And then another one, and this really applies if you're getting started or thinking about getting started in this business, now is your time because the competition from other other buyers, other owners, other syndicators is going to drop. Um, I know lots of other sponsors that are already just moving on to other asset classes. And part of the reason is, is they can't get the deals to underwrite. Um, they aren't confident they can still raise the equity. Uh, they, you know, their investors uh, expect, you know, returns that were based on what, what was happening five years ago. And now that, you know, you have to buy a property at 65% LTV instead of 85% LTV, um, you know, they're having difficulty with those conversations. So, you know, if you talk to guys who've been around for decades, um, they will tell you the biggest money is made in the downturns. And one of many reasons for that is your competition goes away. And that's starting to happen. People are starting to like just, yeah, I'm going to sit on the sidelines, right? And that doesn't mean that just go buy everything right now and throw caution to the wind. We can talk more about that later. But what it means is, is if I said, if you haven't started yet, now's the time to build your systems, build your team, be ready for opportunities that I think are coming in 23 and 24. Mm-hmm. So that that's a silver lining. If you've had, if it's if it has been too competitive for you to get into this business the last five years, that is about to ease off, and this could be your window. And and one last thing I'd say is that uh, the the interest rates have been low for a while, right? Um, yeah, we were able to borrow monies on multifamily at, at you know three three and a half, sometimes maybe even in the two percents. Those rates are uh, you know it's hard to sell those properties, but now if I've got a property that I borrowed at three percent interest on, I can now liquidate that property and offer the assumption of that debt to do to people. And that didn't happen as often. Um, cause like, well, I don't want to assume your 3% loan cause I can go get another 3% loan or I can get at 3.4. Why do I want your 3% um, mortgage? So I think that for existing owners and for new buyers as well, there's an opportunity to get creative on financing, which multifamily has not required creative financing ever. 
Uh, not, well, not, not for a while, but it will now. And so for a buyer and seller looking to put their heads together and find a way to make the deal work, and they could, uh, uh, seller financing could come back, Andrew. Meaning like if I'm, if you're going to assume my 3% mortgage, that versus going and get your own 6% mortgage, you can be very inclined to assume my 3%. And maybe as a seller, I'm willing to hold a second behind that, which people haven't had to do up until now. But maybe that allows for more creativity to come into the space, which that creativity is really what makes the juices flow in real estate investing. And it hasn't been required. And multifamily buying has been best and final, best and final, final, best and final, 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 the last couple of years. But maybe that goes away and it's now like, okay, who's really wants to get this deal done? The brokers lose a little bit more. <laughs> they lose a little bit of control and the buyers and sellers are able to really put deals together. What do you well, think? And, you know, and here, here's another one. Um, and you're absolutely right. The you know, assumptions are going to come back into vogue, uh, creative yep. financing, but you know, rising interest rates like we have right now, what another another factor that that has is your quote unquote liability, your mortgage, right? If you've got a <laughs> low interest rate, you know, three percent fixed mortgage, all of a sudden that mortgage is starting to become an asset, right? Because if inflation's at eight yeah. percent, number one, you're making five percent on it, and then number two, your property is more valuable if someone can come in and assume your mortgage at three percent instead of getting their own at six. Yeah, they'll pay you more for that. They pay, they'll pay you like that. You, you're going to get a premium for that three percent mortgage you have. And incidentally, yeah. that is going to contribute to low vol, the low inventory because many owners are locked out of selling their properties because they can't can't or don't want to give up their low mortgage. And that is, I think a source of contention for a lot of people that want the market to crash. So what we're being told by the Fed is, hey, we're going to stop inflation by raising interest rates. It's this simple. When rates go up, the economy does worse. When rates go down, it does better. So we're putting the brakes on. We got it all under control. The reality when you look at the big picture is that's not the case. This actually could create a more of a uh, shortage in supply. Because in, in the single family space and the multifamily space, if you've got a great interest rate at 3% and you're thinking, hey, I got all this equity in my house, I could sell it and buy another house, but I got to get a 7% rate. I don't want to do that. I don't put my house on the market. Same thing goes with the multifamily space that you guys are seeing. Ways It was easy to raise money to buy deals and pay top dollar for them when rates were low. I guess what I'm getting at is rates alone is not enough to create the correction that we need. You got to actually build more units. And as you two have both said, that is becoming more expensive to do. Supply chain issues that we're having where it's harder to get supplies. People that have not had to work, frankly, for quite a few years now that are the labor pool has sort of been diminished in these like difficult jobs that we need to make America work, working out in the hot sun, doing physical labor are not very popular right now. And then you throw on top of it with wage increases, you have to pay these people more to do the same work than before. It doesn't look like we're going to be building a ton of multifamily stuff anytime soon. So I like that you guys are highlighting, don't assume there's going to be a market crash just because rates are going up. But I love the introduction of creativity back into the market, like what you said, Matt. I was just telling my agents on the David Green team. I have not been this excited since I got my real estate license because this is the first time there was any ability to use like skills and strategies that didn't just start and end with highest and best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? If you had a parrot on your shoulder that just said highest and best, highest and best, you could be a listing agent. That's what it was oh like. God. Now we've got all this like flexibility here. We're like, Hey, his mortgage is at 4%. Mine would be at seven and a half. I'll pay him more if I can assume the mortgage a hundred percent. That becomes an asset and it opens up 
windows of creativity for those that are actually skilled that have been listening to this podcast that are like you two that understand investing and have been putting tools in your tool belt as opposed to I'm a 27 year old entrepreneur on Instagram who calls myself a syndicator, send me your money and I'll go overpay for a property and just wait for cap rates to compress and rates to go down and I can make it work. You know, David, you just reminded me of another silver lining that I'm hoping uh, will show up. And that is, and this this has been a big hurdle for new investors the last five or six years. And it used to not be this way. But now the last five, six years in multifamily, one of the question, you know, one of the questions the parrot repeats is how much is your hard money deposit, right? Hmm. You got to put down $100,000 non-refundable day one, and you can't get yeah. that back no matter what. As the market shifts to more of a neutral uh, position between buyers and sellers, uh, there's a good chance that will hopefully go away and and de-risk uh, the buy side of the equation. Because again, it used to not be that way. That is a result of the tight competitive market of the last five, six years. And so if that's been a hurdle for you as a new investor, that might hopefully go away or at least back off a little bit. I agree. I think all that's fantastic. I'd love it if like all this hard money stuff, whatever went away. And it's also just it's pushing the market up. Like you said, it's whoever's willing to pay the most for the property wins. That's it. That's that's your winner. But the problem with that is a rising tide raises all boats. And so um, if this property in Atlanta sold for well over what it should have because the broker pushed and, and had his little parrot on his, on his shoulder going best and final, best and final, and highest and best, highest and best. And then they use that number to pull up the property down the block that sell or whatever. And just it all kind of pushes the market well beyond reality and well beyond where the real world cash flow. So my hope is that it pulls that a lot of things settle down. And maybe I'm not talking about a 50% crash or anything like that. I'm talking I'd love to see like a 10 to 15% settle down. And and by the way, those that are sitting around, I see people on Instagram rooting for this thing, you know, like real estate's next, crypto, then read a real, you know, the stock market, now crypto, now real estate. Guys, the three of us were around during their last crash, I can tell you. Anybody that's rooting for the real estate market to crash was not around when it did it the last time. It is not fun. It is not you know money getting printed in the streets. It sucked. Okay, and eventually it worked its way out and deals were made. But for those that were that owned anything during that time, it was a scary time to be investing in real estate. So I can tell you, you do not wish the market to do that. It'd be great if it softened up a little bit and allowed for creativity and buyer and seller to have equal footing again. That would be great. But a crash, guys, do not hope and pray for that. I promise you, you don't want it. That's a that's a great point overall, is what we ideally want is some form of equilibrium between supply and demand, buyers and sellers. It's okay if it's tilted in one direction or the other at times, but these wild spikes, just like a diabetic's blood sugar, is not healthy. You don't want it going to where it's sellers have all of the power and then it's like now investors with money have all of the power in either direction your average joe loses they can't compete with the people that have a ton of money in a seller's market and they can't get loans to buy houses in the buyer's market so if you're listening to this podcast that's a great point matt we we would like to find some form of equilibrium i'm going to move on to the next question i have for each of you we've discussed tailwinds now let's talk headwinds matt i'm going to throw it to you first this is where is this becoming more difficult for multifamily investors well that, there, a lot of equity just got sucked out of the market david and, and up until recently it was like 
you know, you do one Instagram, one Facebook post, it felt like that, like, hey, I got a deal. And all of a sudden, boom, I'm fully funded, you know? So it was, it became overly easy, I think. And like you said, there were some knuckleheads out there just putting a social media post, you know, brand new to the real estate market and all of a sudden raising $10 million or whatever. Uh, hey, God bless. I'm glad they did. But it's going to become harder uh, to raise equity, a lot harder, I think, uh, to get equity into your deals, A, because of this is the most questionable, unstable feeling place. A lot of investors that I've talked to are like, oh, I'm not sure, interest rates or whatever. And up until, you know, even during COVID, people are like, I got to put my money somewhere. I'm really liquid. I got to I gotta invest. Um, I Folks are not saying that anymore. They're kind of looking for shelter, looking for just in case and looking for what ifs, right? So uh, the biggest headwind that I've seen is that equity, the access to equity is changing very quickly. I mean, faster than a lot of us as syndicators thought that it would. Uh, and that's because, you know, folks' net worth, a lot of it changed. Those that had a lot of money in real estate or crypto, wherever you choose, you know, whatever floats your boat, wherever you're keeping your cash has changed a lot recently. And it's going to continue to change as those markets remain volatile. Well, to add on to what Mart, uh, Matt was saying, yeah, I, I, I think I've met you before, right? No, okay. Have we met? Yeah, you look like yeah. a Mark, and I don't know. <laughs> but um, to, to add on to what Matt, Matt Faircloth, yeah, okay, was saying, um, yeah, is, is right, yeah. as that equity gets harder to raise, that means the sponsorship groups that require that equity are going to be dropping out of the market, which means they yep. either might be going away altogether, um, which or lowering what they offer because they're like, well, I'm not sure if I can, you know, I'm, I'm going to make an $8 million offer instead of a 10 because I don't know if I can mm -hmm. raise the equity to get to 10. Uh, so, you know, that's one of those things we, we talked about before that's good from a new investor point standpoint, standpoint because, hey, it reduces competition. But if you already own something, that could lead to, again, a softening of, of the market and potential decline in prices. I do not see a crash. I, I'll, I'll flat out say that. I do not see a crash. However, in select asset classes and select markets, could we see softening or some price decreases? Absolutely, yes. That's just like more, but more of a normal real estate cycle. Um, you know, the, the crash last time, real estate caused that. Yes, and and was was not the victim of it. it. Was the other way around. Real estate just you know went off the roller coaster first and took the economy with it. We're in a very different situation this time around. Um, so that that is that's a double headwind. Matt, you want to? Did you want to add something? Well, I wanted to throw in that that to to go off what you had said about like debt uh, debt maybe getting softer as well. We were just quoted on a um, on a what I thought to be a fairly good deal. Uh, it was sixty five percent loan to value was a quote that I got. Uh, from a uh, from a broker, um, and uh, I've, I was surprised because it was you know good deal that made good money, and just it seems like debt is the the debt markets are getting a little softer, not just on interest rates. And the reason why it was sixty five percent LTV is because the debt service coverage ratio um, has gotten more compressed because debt's gotten more exp expensive. So if my deal is, can you briefly the, describe what you mean by that? Sure. So. Um, if you've got a piece of real estate that's producing 100,000 in rent and $50,000 in expenses, your NOI is 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 50k, right? So that's one side of the DSCR equation. The other side of it is what is my debt service? And so if I if my entire monthly payment that I pay to service my debt including principal and interest if I'm paying principal as well, let's just say it's $35,000. Well, okay, I'm profitable at 15k. Yay me. The bank is going to divide that 50K 
you know, the, the 35K into the 50K to determine what ratio that is. And they would typically want to see what Andrew is somewhere in the 1.2 to 1.3 range, meaning that I can make that monthly payment 1.2 times, mm-hmm. right? Or 1.3 times um, in a given month. And that means that I've got that, that's the, what they like is that 0.2, 0. 0.3 part, right? They want to, they certainly want to see you can at least make the monthly payment, but then you have some extra. A 1.2 ratio would mean you have about an extra 20% coming yes. in every month more than above what you your mortgage payments, your, right? your payments, right? Yes. Good. And that number is, is how apartment buildings or commercial real estate determines how much a bank is going to let you lend versus residential, where they say, well, how much money do you make at your job? Then they look at your personal debt to yeah. income ratio versus the property. It becomes a major factor. That's why, that's why you're yes. mentioning that. When um, and, but what's interesting, David, is because rates, you know, were three, three and a half on multifamily up until recently. And now they're, you know, five, five and a half, or could be uh, in that range. The, the uh, debt service, aka the the amount my monthly payment has gone up quite a bit, and certainly my deal maybe has become more profitable because of rent increases or whatever. But um, in some cases, uh, one has exceeded the other, meaning the interest has pushed the debt service higher on a deal, and so the banks are saying, okay, well. I have to I have to pull a lever here. So if your interest rates have gone up, I can't lend you as much money on that deal. So I have to drop your LTV down to a point where where it makes sense. This is this is what they call where your deal is DSCR restricted, meaning I'm only going to lend you but so much. Uh, I'm, I'm going to lend you enough money to where your DSCR ratio is whatever their whatever their guideline is, typically 1.2, 1.3, somewhere in there. Right. So if I can make sure we understand this correctly. If you were trying to get approved to buy a house and your a residential property and your debt to income ratio only allowed you to buy something up to six hundred thousand, but you wanted to buy something that was a million, the they'd say, yeah, you can buy it, but we're only going to fund sixty percent of it. You got to come up with the other forty percent yourself. In this case, it's the asset is only producing this much income, so you can borrow this much, but anything above that, you got to bring in the extra capital. Yeah, yeah. Which which obviously makes the price of the asset lower because they're because now the person buying it has to bring more capital into the deal that makes it less attractive so look at the because again there's multiple factors in the storm right and so you've got this happening right so interest rates have caused uh the dscr to compress a bit meaning you know rates have gone up and that means the, the my cost to service my debt is increased put that in there. And if I'm now able to get I can't get 75% loan to value and if I'm buying a million dollar property I used to be able to get 750, uh, 750,000 at a 75% LTV. Now I can only get 650,000. That means I have to do what? I got to go out and raise the other 100K. But as Andrew and I had said before, equity has become softer because equity investors have become a little more skittish, not concerned where the world's going. And so those two things, that means that debt is the enormous headwind. And when you combine the two is that debt has gotten you know, a little bit lower on what they're going to be willing to do for a deal. And equity's also gotten softer. Those two things together are going to make a, are going to make us as syndicators, I think, way more just real, let's say, on what we're able to offer on a property. And we can't just go in there and shoot the lights out anymore as we could before because, you know, equity was easy to get and a bank was going to give us a lot of money for the property because rates were low, right? And that enabled us to you know, get, get loony during best and final, 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 final on a property. Now I can't do that because I know my equity is a little bit softer and my bank's not going to just give me whatever I want to borrow on the property. Yeah. And if you guys would like to learn more about how you too can raise money, well, Matt Faircloth wrote a book on it called 
raising private capital. We also have another uh, podcast, a couple of episodes coming out with Amy Missouri, episode 636 and 637, where she breaks down her actual process, like a framework that you can follow for raising capital. So make sure you check those out after this one airs. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Your competitors are fighting for your customer's attention. So how do you stand out? Easy. Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Reach new audiences, grow your customer list, sell more, raise more, and fast-track your growth. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business through email and SMS marketing, social media, and even events management. Don't know much about marketing? Don't sweat it, because Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. And with my boot camps and live events, I just don't have the time to clone myself. So I just let Constant Contact do the marketing for me, and you should too. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. You're ready to open a business bank account for your new property. You know what that means. Coordinating a time between you, your co-founders, and your bank consultant. Waiting at the branch or waiting for hours on the support line. Who has time for that? With Relay, you can open a business bank account for your property 100% online from anywhere. Create up to 20 accounts to organize money by property or by categories like expenses, taxes, or investments. Effortlessly collaborate with role-specific access. That means giving your cleaner a debit card for cleaning supplies or your accountant read-only access to your transactions. Own multiple businesses? Relay lets you open unlimited accounts and access them all from one centralized login. Okay, I'm just, I'm going off script here. That is cool. It's annoying that I have to log into 10 business accounts with my current bank. So go sign up for RelayFi because that's a, that's a feature that I like. No monthly fees or minimums, and it takes just 10 minutes to sign up. Head on over to RelayFi.com slash BiggerPockets for stress-free banking. You can join me because I'm heading on over there right now. I'm heading on over to RelayFi.com slash BiggerPockets. Relay is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by ThreadBank, member FDIC. The Relay Visa debit card is issued by ThreadBank pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. and may be used everywhere Visa debit cards are accepted. Listen up, business owners, because I've got some quick little math for you. Fewer costs equal more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. 
So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Oh, also, NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You can improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. So don't let rising costs sink your business growth. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash biggerpockets. NetSuite.com slash BiggerPockets. NetSuite.com slash BiggerPockets. Okay, so we've talked about some tailwinds. We've talked about some headwinds. Andrew, tell me how you think this is all going to balance itself out. What can we expect with these different factors that have changed? Yeah, there's there's quite a few, and and I'll I'm gonna I'll add one more headwind than that that'll lead into that. And one of the biggest headwinds with all of this is you know as gas prices just about double and food goes up 25, 50% and utilities go up and all these expenses, living expenses, day-to-day living expenses get higher. It makes it that much harder for the average person and especially the average renter to make ends meet at the end of the day, uh, especially the further down the the chain that you go, right? So, um, you know, what's happening is, one of the things that's happening is, is as you go into like C class, we're starting to see delinquency creep up, right? Because a lot, of, a lot of these folks, they, you know, they're, they're unfortunately they're in the position where they're, they're lucky to make it to the end of the month and, and still have a positive balance, and so it's hard for them to absorb gas doubling or food going up. You know, there's not many things that people pay for before rent, but food is one of them. And so is gas because they got to get to their job so they at least have an income, right? Um, so, so that that that's another important headwind that I think that we'll probably touch on a little bit later. But you know what all of this is leading to when you combine the tailwinds and the headwinds. Uh, number one, we are seeing, despite all the doom and gloom, the best operational results ever still in class B and A minus. Uh, class C, like I mentioned, starting to see some deterioration there. But you know, we just got our our June results on our portfolio, and almost every property had record performance in June, better better than it's ever been over the last you know five years that we've owned them. So those fundamental tailwinds um, are are still driving performance. Uh, again, Class C. It's not bad yet, but we are starting to see the delinquency you know, rise there. And you know, Matt, 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 and I can maybe box a little bit on on our opinion of uh, uh, Class C. I knew it. <laughs> I knew he was going to come after Class C. Where's my boxing glove? So, so yeah. we can yeah. get into that later. Um, another result, uh, <laughs> and another result is the whisper targets aren't hitting, aren't being hit. Right. So how the multifamily bidding world has worked for the last five years is you know owner B looks down the street and says, hey, owner A sold his property just like mine last month for uh, you know, 100,000 a door. Cool. My whisper is going to be 110. Like that was how it worked. Like, all right, just add 10% and that's my yeah. that's my whisper target. And Andrew, those, can you mention what a whisper target is? Yeah, actually, I was just about to do that. So um, another uh, thing that will hopefully start going away, uh, another silver lining, you know, David, I'm so glad you brought that up. I keep thinking of more and more silver linings to all this, um, is, you know, it used to be that when an apartment complex came up for sale, they actually told you the expected price. Well, <laughs> five or six. 
They actually put a price yeah. In the Here's the yeah, offer. Imagine that. What are you looking to? Uh, what are you looking to get for this thing? So about five, six years ago, someone decided, you know what? Let's just see what happens and get everyone all whipped up into a frenzy. We're going to stop telling them the price, right? And they're, they're, what they're, they're doing is they're they're looking for excitement and someone who doesn't know how to underwrite and like they'll pay a million more than everybody else. So. Unlist. So what what replaced that is the whisper number. So the broker sends it to you, uh, and they're like, "Oh, here's this great property," and you got to call the broker and be like, "What's the whisper? What's the target?" Right? Because the selling price is now a secret, and that has been the case. It's the worst, it's the worst name for it ever. Can you whisper it in my ear now, please? It's, it's kind of like, like pocket it's, listing. It's the same type of thing. Yeah, like, like, it's not public information, but I'll tell you about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It to everybody. And, and any, anyone who calls and asks, I'll tell as well. So, And when I find th- these guys, because I've, I've gotten them to admit to it, Andrew, uh, sometimes after you get a cocktail in them or whatever, they don't whisper the same number to everybody. And that's what the danger of this, of the, the way these brokers are putting these properties in the market in that like, hey, here's the offering. Um, and you call the broker, what's the whisper price? I'm like, well, okay, is this guy a patsy? Uh, it, it, can I, can I, you know, get them to offer a lot on the property to pull the mark, to pull all my bids up or whatever? Well, I'll, I'll tell them that the whisper is a little bit higher because I think that they might actually bite on that, on that fish hook. You know, that's just my, I, that's what I believe is happening. Maybe I've only had one or two brokers admit to it, but that's what's possible. Uh, think about that, David, as a broker, if you didn't have to put a price on a property and you just could tell people verbally with the price of every, every, every time they came to look at it, the, the more unscrupulous brokers would say, well, you look like you actually would qualify for a higher purchase price or you got some money to spend. So I'm going to tell you it's a million and a half. So the people that looked at it earlier, they, I don't know if they were going to be able to get there, but they look serious. So I'm going to tell them 1.1, right? This is whisper thing is Looney Tunes to me. Yeah, it's funny, Matt, you mentioned about the different numbers, the different buyers, that definitely happens. It certainly does. Well, that's also a byproduct of unbalanced supply and demand. When there's too much demand and not enough supply, because if you're the sell of that apartment, you may approve of the broker doing something like that. Because if you think it's going to get you more money and that's your fiduciary, then that's what you want to see. All that stuff gets balanced out when we have some form of normalcy. And that's why as like a weirdo, I just get so jazzed up. Like finally, it's getting worse. Finally, it's getting harder. We've I've been waiting so long and the real estate's fun again. Yeah. Uh, Matt, what's your opinion on what you think we're going to see between the headwinds and the tailwinds that we've discussed and what kind of environment it's going to create? I think that uh, what's funny about real estate, right, is it's not like the stock market where like, oh, there was bad news 30 minutes ago and now this price of the of the stock market will change. Real estate's a hand grenade market, you know? Um, and so the, the, a thing happens and then it affects, it, it shows up in real estate, you know, 90 to 120 days later, right? And so the hand grenade has not exploded yet in real estate. And that's because that, you know, deals that Andrew and I, you know, in our, in our different companies bid, like have not fallen out of contract yet. And they're gonna, but they have not fallen out yet because the debt market's gone way up or because these guys can't raise their equity um, or because whatever it is. So I'm, we're, I believe I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop and for things to start to make a little bit more sense and these brokers to like have deals fall out and realize, oh geez, I actually wasn't able to push this deal two or three million above uh, what the seller told me they wanted to get for the property. So um, I might have to get a little more real and find somebody who can actually close and come up with a collaborative number that makes sense for both parties. So to this, the, the answer to your question, David, is I think that we need that to happen. We need the hand grenade to explode and to let things, let, let a 10% 
you know, realization happen. And I think that'll happen in the next, say, 30 to 60 days. And it's not going to take long um, because rates are what they are. And equity is getting softer. It's a fact. So I, I think that those things will play out probably by the middle of the fall. I think that we'll see a different angle of attack for those looking to sell here. I'm going to ask you each about strategies that you think would work in this market. Before I do, I want to point something out for people that are listening to this. If there is maybe more inexperienced with real estate in general, or if they just haven't got into multifamily, the way that stocks, crypto, other investment vehicles, I like to call them button pushing investments because like you just click a button on your computer. There's a lot less elbow grease that goes into investing in some of these equities versus real estate investing, which is frankly what makes them attractive, right? You're working at your job, you're in tech, you pay attention to stuff. Stock trading can be fun. The problem is there is an instant response in the market to something that happens, okay? Some company says, we've got a new product. Everyone's like, oh, what's going to happen? Well, we're going to need more more silicon chips to build this thing. So I'm going to go invest in a silicon chip place or the, the mine that makes it, the company that owns that. Like Everything happens really quick. So when you watch the news, you see a, an instantaneous response. The markets are affected very quickly. Like, like Bitcoin did not tick down, okay? It was like over a couple of days, it just plummeted. Okay. That's normal in these button pushing investment vehicles. Real estate is different. Sellers don't watch the news and hear Jerome Powell say, Hey, you guys should stop buying houses and see interest rates go up and then say, Oh my God, slash the price from a million to 600,000 right now. They just, people don't think that way. They think with their emotions. So what happens is properties have to sit for a long time and it is a grueling process of being tortured before sellers will finally adjust their price. Like the, the market has to speak to them. So there's this natural delay in real estate between when the rates go up, when the, the tailwinds or the headwinds occur, and when you actually see the adjustment. So I wanted to get your, your take first off on how you see that playing out in the multifamily space. Like you guys mentioned in a month or two, we're going to see this. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, you know, this is the time, you know, Matt, you were talking about deals, you know, getting retraded or blowing up or falling apart. You know, this is the time to apply, you know, the old adage, the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. Like you want to be second mouse right now um, because a lot of these deals are going to fall out. You want to be patient uh, there. You know, and I'm not saying sit on the sidelines and we can we can go into that you know, why in a little bit, but, you know, like when we talk about these tailwinds and these headwinds and in the risks, um, you know, I would say there's, there's like seven things that you can do to mitigate this. And maybe I'll just hit them real quick. And then whatever, you know, whatever we want to jump into. Number one, if you've got good team members, either like as part of your internal core team or um, working at your properties, make sure you compensate them very well. Uh, Solid team members, especially at the property level, will make or break your business. I mean, you buy a $10 million asset, you do not want to get the cheapest person you can find to run that for you, right? You want to find someone who's good and overcompensate them. Uh, second, uh, and Matt, I don't know, you might jump on, on this later, I'm sticking to class B and class A uh, because, again, when you get into economic distress, class C tends to feel that the first and the hardest. Another way that you can mitigate this as you're looking at deals is go in with lower leverage debt, right? Now, Matt, again, something you said, a lot of lenders are going to force you to do that right now anyways. Uh, but when you're underwriting, 
And everything we look at, we look at 55 to 65 percent LTV. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is, is that gives you a better chance of being able to refinance if you need to. And, you know, if rates are higher down the road, you're not going to be stuck because you don't have a, you know, you went in at 85% and there's too much, your debt coverage ratio that you talked about is not there. So you go in with lower leverage debt. Uh, another thing to do is you pay attention to loan compliance, right? And we're like, okay, what the heck does that mean? Well, we all happily sign, we get excited. It's closing day. We're signing these loan docs and the loan docs are 85 pages. Well, you didn't read on page page 76 that it says you know that they're going to check every quarter and by the way if your debt coverage ratio goes down or your personal net worth goes down or any other thing in there um, oh you're going to be in technical default on this loan and your interest rate goes from four to fifteen percent right and th- I'm not that is I have literally seen that stuff in loan documents my favorite one that I have seen in loan documents and we spent two weeks arguing to get this taken out is that the bank could declare default if for any reason the the bank felt uneasy like that was the actual wording right right? so if the bank president is getting a divorce and his crypto just got cut in half he can he can look at my loan and be like i don't like this loan anymore you're in default even though the property's performing great right and i'm like i'm not exaggerating this is actual stuff in loan docs so make sure you read your loan docs it's boring as heck but make sure you do it or hire a really good attorney that can do it for you Uh, i would still review it yourself though also be prepared to hold longer. The days of buying an apartment complex, doing a quick value add and selling it two to three years later to deliver a super high IRR, those days are over for now, right? Look to buy great assets in great locations that will be worth more five to seven to 10 years down the road, even if they decline a little bit in the short term. Uh, Also, know your lender. Some lenders are good good for certain business plans and some aren't, right? You don't, you don't, you don't, if you're looking at a 50% vacant value add, don't go talk to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, right? They're, they're, that's not their product. Um, and then kind of adding on to that, make sure that you structure your debt to fit your business plan and be as adaptable as possible, right? So, so what does, and we could do a whole podcast on that, but you know, like, what does that mean? Well, you know, if you're buying a property today, let's say you're, you're, you're doing your first property, it's 10 units, and you're getting a bridge loan, don't get a bridge loan that has a balloon payment due in two years and you have to refinance or sell, right? Because that means you've only got one option to get out and you and if the market's not in a good place in two years, you're up against the wall, right? So something better is maybe get a loan that, um, well, I'll give an example. We're doing a deal now where we're getting a bank loan that has a short prepayment penalty uh, just only for the first couple of years and we can refinance it if things are good in two to three years. But if things are not good in two to three years, it's a 28-year loan. We can hold for 28 years if we have to, right? Now, obviously, we don't intend to do that. But no, so no matter what, where the market is, we have good options. And our plan is to hold that for five to seven years. So that debt matches well with our business plan. We can refinance early, we can sell early, or we can hold forever if we have to. And that is, that's an example of how you mitigate these risks we're talking about by matching your debt to your business model. Man, he said a lot there, David. Which one are you going to respond to first? Because he came after Class C, so I, I went and got my I boxing gloves. I knew it. I knew that was coming, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm ready for you. So, and, and, and a lot of things you said uh, outside of Class C, I agree with. So where do you want to go, David? Well, here's 
let me give you guys this my take, and then I want to see what how you two each feel this applies to multifamily, which will a- absolutely set you up to go at it right now. I'm going to be like the Don King and promote this fight. What I've always preached is that when the market is hot, like it's been the last several years, it feels safer to buy a cheaper price property. Okay. It's stupid. That doesn't make any sense when you actually understand real estate investing. But to the ignorant who are just new to this, they're like, ah, the market's really hot. I need to go buy in the worst city in the worst neighborhood because that's where the lowest price point is. But when the market corrects, those are the first ones. It's like you you bought in the flood zone, basically. That's what's flooding first. The stuff at the top of the mountain on the top of the hill, though it's the most expensive, the floodwaters rarely ever get that high and those properties don't crash. So what I tell people is the the hotter the market is, the nicer of a property you have to buy. So I bought a handful of properties in the last four or five years, but they were all in like A or A plus neighborhoods or units that I felt super good about. I I kept buying, but I bought less. I'm okay with people buying in not like never a war zone or a D minus type neighborhood, but the stuff that's kind of on the border, if the market has crashed, okay, and it's got nowhere to go but up, you just don't know when, and it's going to cash flow, and it's an asset that you can manage. It's just maybe more of a headache than what you would like. I'm okay with people buying those type of assets after a crash because then you ride it on the way up. And when it's appropriate, you sell, you 1031 in the one you actually want to own. It's like supercharging it. Don't do that at the peak. That's the worst time ever. Those are the properties are going to get hammered. So when that same um, principle applies to multifamily, give me some strategies of where you see this applying in your guys' space. I will talk about how it applies to Class C, right? Um, so uh, so what I've seen in the past in Class C um, is that although Class C does get affected by swings in market price, um, uh, and, and it enters right in that, that Class C does feel, does feel changes in markets. And, you know, one of my Class C markets that I, that I know, that everybody knows and love that I do a lot of investing in is Trenton, New Jersey. Trenton had high prices, market crashed, Trenton went way down and it's gone way up again. Um, so Class C sees swings in pricing. But what Class C also has, which is good for a market that's, that, that's maybe going to see a recession or whatever it is, that Class C is a good cash flow market in, in recessions. Because I've seen Class C tenants, first hands, Class C tenants are able to figure out a way to pay their rent. They're able to, like a, a tenant making uh, Class C income and a blue collar job can very easily find another blue collar job. The Class A tenant that's, you know, making 150K a year and he's got the bougie iPad in the wall uh, that he's got that turns his lights on and off. Uh, if his spouse loses their job, they will pull back to class B. And the class B tenant uh, will pull back to lower. It, it's going to domino fall. We've seen that happen in before the crash where like markets like Las Vegas, Miami, uh, those markets saw huge topples uh, and built themselves back up as the market came back up. But Class A real estate and Class B real estate uh, are going to see tenants, in my experience, are going to see tenants migrate away from those uh, in recessions as as uh, other sources, as their income gets affected. One thing they're going to have to do is they have to still keep a roof over their head, but they maybe don't have to live in the bougie apartment complex with two pools and two gyms and a, and a, uh, and a car servicing center and a dog spa, right? They can pull back to live just to keep a roof over their head and live somewhere else. Um, where my class C tenant is not going to pull back and move to class D. If my class C tenant loses their job, they'll very easily find another one. And they have in the past. 
so that's my two cents on Class C on why I think Class C is a good market for something that kind of fell out of fashion the last couple of years, and that is cash flow. Right, cash flow is what got me through 2008, 2009, and it will get investors through the next couple of years. Appreciation and holding properties for a year to 18 months has become the the craze these days, but it is no longer going to be the craze and the way to make money in real estate over the next three to four years. What will make you money in the next three to four years is weathering the storm on properties that make money the day you buy them and cash flowing them through the storm and then selling them on the back end. So. Uh, let me let me add on to that. So and and and, and then the, I, I want to add the disclaimer. I want to add the disclaimer here that just like most people, I started in Class C too, right? I mean, it's not you know, it's not like yeah. oh, well, I'm not I'm too good for these properties. It's just so after a few thousand units, I looked back and said, wow, okay, what made me the greatest returns with the least amount of headache? And it was Class B and, and A minus. But I think David, you laid out the true differentiating factor. It's not that class C is bad. Lots of money has been made in class C over the last 10 years. It's timing is more important in class C. When I was in the, when I was doing this after the last crash, the properties that we were picking up super distressed for 7,500 a unit or 10,000 a unit and were 50% vacant, it was all the class C stuff. It got absolutely obliterated. And now that class stuff, class C stuff that we bought back then for 10 a door, we're selling for 50, 60, and 70 a door, right? So now we say, well, okay, that was really cool. But so what did that class C look like before the crash? That's where, and then that's, and again, we're not, we're not looking at a crash now, but we're definitely, I think, at the top. And so the prop, the potential additional risk with class C at this point is number one, and the, the like two remaining ones that we own, we're already seeing the delinquency go up because people are having trouble, you know, making ends meet. But also one of the hallmarks of the last five or six years was not just cap rate compression, but the compression of the spread in cap rates between class A, class B, and class C. Anyone who's tried to buy an apartment complex the last five years knows that everything was a four cap, right? You could buy an A-class property in Atlanta or a C-class property next to the airport, and you're going to pay a four cap no matter what. Historically, that's not how it works. There is greater risk with class C, and what we're already starting to see is as we go into a potential to this likely cap rate expansion environment, class A and class B will stay more anchored to where they are and class C will migrate back to where back to the mean right so what that means is you're going to see more cap rate expansion in class C than you will in class B and class A uh, we're already seeing that in the market because what happens is um, you know class again class C that that delinquency is going up so when buyers and lenders are looking at a class C property and they're saying oh hey you know is 5, 10, 15% delinquency, you know, evictions have tripled in the last three months, all that, they're going to underwrite to higher vacancy. They're going to give you a lower LTV loan and all those things that we kind of already talked about already that leads to lower pricing, right? That's why, you know, historically, you know, A property might be a four cap and C might be six, seven, or eight, and a mobile home park used to be a 10 or a 12. They're all, they've all been four lately. So we're, we're starting to see that expansion. So, there's a, you know, that's one of the reasons why there's greater risk in C right now is because if we see cap rate expansion, it's most likely to happen, um, you know, right there. And, and so if you're getting ready to get started, just remember that when you're underwriting deals, whether it's a fourplex or a 10 unit or whatever, 
B class is you know less less likely to to get hit with that with that that cap rate expansion. Then also, whether you are looking at C, B, or A, if you buy for today's cash flow and give yourself enough hold time, you you should be okay. And that, that at the end of the day, if you're buying or if you're buying real estate with the goal of selling soon, or you want to have that out to be able to sell it soon, uh, then what cap rates are going to be matters, mm -hmm. right? If you're buying a C-class asset that you're going to value add, you're going to squeeze the lemon, you're going to um, do what I call workforce luxury, where you do like <laughs> luxury add-ons that are workforce. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, that's, I, I'm going to, I should trademark that. Uh, but you're going to do uh, things that work, that work, that are perceived to be luxury items in workforce housing, right? Like, you know, washer dryers in the apartment. A garbage disposal. Yeah. No, garbage disposal is the worst. That's going to, that, all it is, is you, you, you rooting out your sewer <laughs> line at some point. That's a mess waiting to happen. Don't ever give your tenants garbage disposals. We've taken them out. We bought buildings that had them in. Like, no, no, take that out. That's going to be a mess. But you know what I've learned, Matt, is if, if if on the monument side of the apartment complex, it actually has the words luxury, that means it's not. Yes, right. Because it's, it's perceived, right? It's it's it's, a, it's what the market wants, right? But my point is, is that if you're buying C-Class, expect to hold it for a while. There are folks these days that have made a lot of money flipping C-Class and holding it for a year or two. But C-Class, I think, is an investment strategy. Was should have never been designed to be a to be a short-term hold type of real estate investment. C-Class real estate, I, the way I've seen it, those that make money with it are those that are willing to hold it for five to 10 years. And if you're willing to hold C-Class for the next five to 10 years, great. If you want to have that nimble being able to get in and get out, and if your equity investors want to get in and get out of your deal after a couple of years, then Andrew's right. A and B class should be where you should go. But if you're okay, long-term holds, and if you put your brand out that way, that a long-term hold cash flow asset is what you can provide your investors, then C-Class I think is better. But it really goes back to your investment strategy. And not everybody likes the same flavor of ice cream, but I still love you, Andrew. And that's what, Matt, and that's what makes a market, right? If everybody wanted the same thing the same way, we wouldn't have a market. As much as I've loved watching you two go at it, I actually had a thought in the middle of this that might bring you together. If you're investing in a tech heavy city where the majority of the workers are tech people, like let's say Austin, Texas, um, C-class is sort of like, there's not a whole lot of jobs there if you're not in uh, maybe the higher end range of tech or the medical field or something. So your C-class tenants there are a completely different avatar than the working class wake up, put their boots on in Trenton, New Jersey, right? Which is where Matt's investing. So when you're saying C-class, the C-class tenants there may have much more stable incomes. They can bounce from blue collar job to blue collar job. Whereas if you're in maybe San Francisco or Austin or Seattle, there aren't blue collar jobs. You work in these expensive things or you don't have a job. And so that's something to keep in mind because real estate is very market specific that what Matt has in mind when he says C-class, it could be completely different than what Andrew is thinking when he says C-class because they invest in different markets. So in addition to what we just said, where timing the market, like how long you hold. So let's say you're a syndicator who has to raise money and sell in five years. That might be bad. Let's say you're a person who's 1030 wanting a couple million dollars in an apartment. C-class might make a ton of sense because you don't have other people. Um, these are all things to take into consideration. This is definitely not like a rubber stamp that works every market the same. Yeah, that is very well said. You should uh, you should like host this or something. <laughs> yeah, you're you're pretty good at saying summarizing things. That's well, good. thank you guys. I've had a blast. I did a David Green metaphor right now. You did one. 
You said I'm very good. I've not had enough David Green metaphors on this show, David. I love your metaphors. I listen to the show for your metaphors. Um, I had to share that. So, uh, but but I, I thought you were going to go there with the A and, with the A and C class debate. I was waiting. <laughs> but, no, you guys did great. So if you, as a listener, like this thanks. show. Comment in the YouTube comments and let us know. If we get enough positive comments that you like this type of conversation, because frankly, I think this is amazing. This is a masterclass in multifamily investing. You typically don't hear conversations like this unless you belong to a group like GoBundance or something else where you are sort of surrounded by and rubbing elbows with people that do this at a very high level. These are the types of conversations that we all have together when we're not on the podcast. So if you enjoyed this, let us know, and we will do another show where we will have Andrew and Matt back, and they will say what they would do if they were starting over right now from scratch. So we've toyed with this idea, but we don't want to do it unless it's something you want. So if you enjoyed this, let us know in the comments, and we will have them back, and they will say, hey, if I was starting from zero, if I was getting in the game right now, this is what I would do. Okay, looking back at the beginning of your careers, Andrew, what would you do differently starting today? Well, instead of buying Class C myself, I just invest in Matt class, Matt's Class C's because he's got them all figured out. Um, no, I would. Uh, one of the things I was a solo per, solopreneur for way too long. I would have. Uh, I would add team members much more quickly than I did. Uh, that's number one. And then, um, you know, I would have added more bigger nicer class properties to my portfolio earlier on. Uh, that, that's two quick things that come to mind that I would have done differently. Do you feel if you had a stronger friendship with David Green that you might've built that team a little earlier? So maybe that's what we're really getting at here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that's really the root cause of it. And you know, that's what, I mean, it only, only took 10 years for me to finally start absorbing his wisdom and, and, you know, start building a bigger team. So friends don't let friends work solo. I am glad that I could be a part of that journey. Matt Faircloth, same question to you. What would you do differently? I would certainly invest in Class A and Class B real estate because I'll have Cushman in my ear about that, and I want to. I want appreciation, right? Um, no, I. <laughs> uh, in, in all seriousness, if I uh, were were to do it over again or uh, whatnot, I would have focused. If you listen to me on on uh, the Bigger Pockets show number eighty eight that I did with Liz in two hundred three, you'll hear me talk about like nine different things that I'm involved in, right? Like you know we're doing, we're doing some wholesales and doing some fix and flips and uh, and you know, we're you know own an office building and whatever, but the our, our success really didn't skyrocket. Um, you know, when, when Andrew started bringing in lots of team members, it was able to be the rocket fuel that he needed for me by just focusing on initiatives and protocol and, you know, the one thing mm. that's when things really, really took off for us. And so I would have done that a lot sooner. Okay. Andrew, what tips do you have for new investors today? Um, even if you aren't ready to jump in and buy something today, it doesn't mean today is not the time to start, right? Start laying the groundwork so that when even more opportunities come available in 23 or 24, or whenever that is, you are ready to go, right? And there's, there's a lot of different things that go into that. Uh, it's, you know, deciding what, what kind of properties do you want to buy? Who are you going to buy them with? Uh, are you going to have a partner? Are you going to do it, do it, you know, do it on your own? Um, start laying the groundwork and also, don't wait until you see opportunities to start building relationships. You have to nurture relationships. If you know you want to start talking to brokers now, so that when great deals come up, you've got a relationship with them. You you can't just say, "Oh, I'm not going to buy this year, so I'm not going to call anybody for a year." Right? If you don't nurture relationships, those those people will drift away from you like ducks from a breadless man. Matt, how about you? What advice do you have for new investors today? So. 
What I would say, too many investors are on the sideline. And I've got a great David Green analogy here, a metaphor, right? If I, I live in Pennsylvania and David Green lives out in California, and if I told you that I was not, I was going to drive to David Green's house from my home, but I was not going to leave my home until all the stoplights between my home and his home turn green all at the same time right? Then I would be sitting at my house for the rest of my life. And those that are sitting on the sidelines waiting for the market to change or waiting for things to crash or waiting for whatever, right? Like they're in the waiting place from the other places you'll go the book, right? Um, so don't live in the waiting place, get going. There are still deals out there. There are still things you can find and you got to have faith that if you find the right deal, you'll figure it out and the right teams will be there. So first and foremost to new investors, do not live in the waiting place. Number two, you really ought to market your tail off because the, the successful investor is going to be the one that gets noticed in this new economy. Because as I said, equity is getting soft. We talked about that a lot. So getting equity is going to get competitive again. It hasn't been competitive the last couple of years. It's going to get competitive again. So you need to get noticed and scream and yell and wave your hands in the air. So if you're brand new, that's okay. Don't fake it till you make it. Put yourself out there and market what you do have and what you're able to teach people and what you're able to provide as resources. And the last thing I would say, David, is I would, as a new investor, pick a market and focus on it and become the market expert. Be that Albuquerque, New Mexico, the BV investor that knows all the brokers there, that knows where the good deals are, knows the good blocks, bad blocks, knows where the good neighborhoods are, knows where things are being built, knows where things are getting a little tired, knows where the bad neighborhoods are about Albuquerque and drill in. And I think that that's going to be the successful investor as well. And you're going to get that phone call from the broker that has the deal that fell out that we just talked about you're going to get that call if you're the market expert. If you're shopping 25 markets across the continental United States, you're not going to get that phone call. Andrew, Matt, it's been a pleasure having both of you. Would you each like uh, a chance to have a last word? Thank you for having me here. If And you're asking for folks who want to hear more about me, they can go to my website, derosagroup.com, and they can uh, check me out at the at uh, biggerpockets.com forward slash uh, boot camps to join my multifamily boot camp. And it's been an honor, as always, to be chatting with you two today. Uh, Matt, you're a scholar and a gentleman, sir. Um, yeah, likewise, this, this, this has been fun, always is. And uh, it, it is, it's an honor to be here and, and get to uh, get to share with anybody and talk with anybody. And uh, yeah, if you want to connect, uh, I'm on Bigger Pockets. Uh, I have a pro membership, so just connect with me there. Um, or uh, just Google Andrew Cushman and our Vantage Point Acquisitions, just vpacq.com. Matt, did you get a chance to give out where people can connect with you? Uh, I'll say it again, derosagroup.com, D-E-R-O-S-A group.com. And I'm right up there with Andrew on Bigger Pockets. You can hit me up there as well. Uh, love talking to people about this kind of stuff. And if you'd like to invest with Andrew and I in our next deal, go to investwithdavidgreen.com. Don't forget the E and fill out the application there and we will get in touch with you. Guys, this has been awesome. I hope we get a lot of comments in YouTube that say that they liked it. Let us know what you all think. This is David the Silver Linings Playbook for Multifamily Investing Green, signing off. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, 
medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.